Good evening. The scripture reading this evening is from John chapter 19, starting in verse 17 through till 27. Um, If you've got an NIV Pew Bible in front of you, that's 1684, page 1684, John 19, verse 17. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened to that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. This is the word of the Lord. The scenes we're about to look at are the most important in all of human history. I was a history major in in college, which in Latin means one who never finds a job after graduation. (laughs) But by being a history major, you ensure that you must do some further study if you ever want to be employed anywhere outside of a library or a fast food chain. Thankfully, the Lord in His mercy gave me a shove in the direction of studying His Word. But in all of my studies throughout history, world history, all of the wars, all of the, the people, all of the movements, None was even close to the scene we are about to look at and the events that follow right after. The very reason that this building exists 
and is here. The very reason that we are all gathered here this evening, the very reason that millions of people will gather this evening around the world and will gather together on Sunday and gather together on successive Sundays is found on these pages that we're looking at here. How's that for perspective? What is it that we're trying to accomplish tonight? Because I have no doubt that countless churches around the world are looking at some of these exact pages, these exact passages, and ones that are very similar to it, and people are being given details about the death of Jesus. And some are just left there with with no additional information, no interpretive key. It's merely just information. It's a noble man who died, and you should feel bad about that. Others are being told the details of the account of Good Friday, and they're being given happy allegories. Jesus died and rose again. Perhaps you have a relationship that came to an end, it can be resurrected. Or if you are in debt, your finances can be resurrected with your seed gift to our ministry, of course. (laughs) But thankfully, there will be others and many other churches that will help make the main point the main point which is to show people the work of Christ, the eternal plan of the Godhead that was made before the foundations of the earth. This is a day we celebrate because of what it accomplished. This is a day we celebrate because of what it applied. Justification, righteousness, These are now ours because of the eternal Son of God, the Son of glory. And this day reminds us of the cost, that it cost Jesus his life, dying the death that we all deserved so that we can live the life that he's called us to. And so we revisit the cross. We're asking the question, were you there? Like the old spiritual song, were you there? Now, of course, we are separated by time and geography from this event, but we stand with the witnesses of what took place as we become part of the great body of people who come trembling to the cross. Well, we heard in both services just this past Sunday that the crowds in Jerusalem are crying out two separate cries. The first is, Hosanna, save now. And the second is, crucify There's been injustice taking place as every rule of law regarding a proper hearing has been ignored as Jesus is passed between the Jewish high council and the Roman authorities. 
Jesus has been betrayed by one of his own for the price of a slave. He's betrayed by one of his closest disciples who swore that he would never leave him. The disciples desert him, leaving mostly women behind as witnesses. And here we are at the pivotal, climactic moment, and I want us this evening to look at four, four different things in these passages of this most climactic moment of the most important event in human history. First, we notice our scene, verses 17 and 18. From one perspective, you could say that the events of, uh, of verses 17 and 18 were just part of a normal routine. The way that the soldiers uh, carry out and act without any emotion, seemingly, it's not because they don't have emotions and they don't have feelings. It's not because this is not a, a, a gruesome event. It's just that they had done it before so many times, likely. And so to them, this is just another state execution, just another criminal, just another punishment. But also in these verses is the reality that is of eternal significance. John has recorded for us in his prologue that we've recited almost ad nauseum over the last several weeks the words of John the baptizer, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the thing for us to notice as we read this is that here in the everyday events, of Roman occupation and control was being acted out the pivotal event of human history. Not a pivotal event, but the pivotal event. And so while men and women in that day are just going around as business as usual, while life went through its, its normal routine, heaven looked down onto a scene on which mankind's entire destiny hinged. What we find is what is described later by Peter in his letter, which says Christ was a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sakes. Now, of course, it is possible to pay lip service to, to this at Easter time, to, to go through the routine, to, people can even be okay with the different aspects of, a, of an Easter Sunday service and, and, and still miss the relevance of the scene. Because it is this same one who stumbles under the weight of the cross in verse 17, is the same one who is nailed between two criminals, is the same one who cries out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, is the same one who in his humanity calls down, I thirst. This one who endures this agony is not just a man, but it is God incarnate, it is God in human flesh, and God staggers under the weight of a wooden cross. 
This is where we find the relevance of the scene. Uh, Many of us are so familiar with this story, so familiar with these passages that it has lost its power, that it has lost its punch. And we need the reminder today and every day of the reality of what is taking place here in these verses. The God of heaven, high and lifted up, the holy, blameless, pure, True, all-knowing, all-powerful, loving, gracious, just God has in the second person of the Trinity taken on human flesh and is now carrying a wooden cross to his own execution at the very hands of his own creation. Beloved, were you there Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Now, I need to point out that it is, it's it's popular that, that we spend a lot of time looking at the gruesomeness of the cross, at the details of the pain, at how horrible the method of crucifixion is. And yet the gospel writers don't Spend a lot of time on it. Look at verse 18. How does John deal with the crucifixion? In four words. Here they crucified him. You look at Matthew, you look at Mark, you look at Luke, and you will find them virtually the same. There's a place for thinking about the, the, the nature of his suffering so that we come on a night like tonight and you may be sitting there and saying, no one understands my pain. No one understands how lonely I feel. And the answer from heaven is that there is one who knows. For in his suffering, he entered the depths of all suffering for all mankind for all time. And while there is benefit in that, these tend to bring about a response that is emotional, sentimental. I confess I do it. it, it it's true. We, I think about these terrible things that have happened to my Lord and I'm overcome with emotion. There's nothing wrong with that. But that is not the issue here. God's concern as we read these events and as we ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher isn't seeking that we would be emotionally stirred only but that we would be radically changed, that we would be spiritually transformed. I don't care if this is the first time you have heard the gospel or the 4,000th time. We need to hear it again and again for the renewing of our minds, for we are engaged in spiritual warfare, and we are either content with hearing the gospel once and then allow the flesh to overwhelm and overpower our spirit, convincing ourselves that everything is fine, or we recognize that moment by moment and day by day, we are either feeding the sinful nature or we are feeding the spirit. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, something that the enemy would love for us to believe, but our battle is against the spiritual forces of evil 
in the heavenly places. And so we either put on the armor of God, which is to put on Christ Himself, or we wage war with a water pistol in our own strength in which we cannot stand. And so we come again and again to what Christ has done for us, understanding again that it is not a call to be emotional and then carry on with life. And then when you need an emotional feeling, you come back and you get an emotional feeling and then you go back to living your life. But it is a call to live our lives with our eyes set on Christ at all times. Beloved, were you there when they crucified my Lord? We move from our scene to a sign, verses 19 through 22. It's customary in the process of crucifixion for the crimes of the criminal to be, uh, the criminal to be crucified to, to be written out on a board. It's also customary for that criminal to be wherever the place of crucifixion is for them to be marched the longest route and to parade them through the streets on their way to their ultimate death. This was done as sort of a final humiliation. It was also to send a message to would-be criminals that this is the punishment for a capital offense. But there is another reason. It was to give individuals an opportunity to stand forward and say that the person that is being paraded around is not actually guilty of the crime that's posted on their sign. It's sort of an appeal process. Even at that point, they would retry the hearing on the spot. And sometimes people never even made it to the scene of the crucifixion because their appeal was made. And it is within the framework of that that Pilate takes this sign and posts it on the cross of Christ. It reads, verse 19, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Pilate is just following his own theme here. In verse 14, he said to the Jews, here is your king. And they replied, crucify him. In verse 15, again, he says, shall I crucify your king? And they respond, we have no king but Caesar. So Pilate says, I'm going to show them that they do have a king. If he's going to go to this cross, then I'm going to give him this title. And so he does, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. The title is significant. It's significant because Jesus must be crucified as the king of the Jews in order to become king of a far wider, far greater kingdom so that he can be the king of a a kingdom that that recognizes no racial or, or, or national distinctions. Listen to how it's written in Revelation. You are worthy, speaking of Christ, you are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
So the death of Christ, it's a graphic display of his kingship. True that he was king of the Jews, but denied by them, crucified by them. And it was by this way that he was going to become king of an even greater kingdom, an even bigger kingdom. It's interesting that John points up that it's written in Aramaic, which is the language of the Jews. It's written up in Latin, which was the official uh, language of government, and it's written up in Greek, which was the language of commerce, culture. It's the language of the Roman citizens, so that the whole world would be able to read this sign, this description, how much this shows that Jesus is an international Savior, that Jesus is a cosmic Christ. Jesus Christ is king over the whole earth. This is not news only for the Western world. This is not news only for the Eastern world. Other religious leaders have come and gone, and, 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 and those religious groups have primarily stayed within their own people groups, within their own sects. But of Jesus the Christ, his kingdom shall have no end. And on the day when he gathers his own, there will be people from every people group from every language, from every nation, as it says in His Word. The sign is not only significant for its title, it's also significant because of the reaction that it brought. Look at the reaction of the chief priests in verse 21. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Why didn't they want that written out? It's because it's going to make them look bad, and they don't want to look bad. What would the world think if the leaders of the Jews had killed the king of the Jews? The the, the curse of the one who's hanging there was brought about by their actions. Pilate, in a sense, is saying, you don't have a king? You do have a king. What I have written, I have written. You, you can picture almost his, his sense of satisfaction in, 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 in giving that response to them. Because the Jewish leaders, they're, they're using Pilate. They're, they're, they're pushing him. They're forcing him. They're maneuvering him. Uh, they have him going in and out and in and out, and they're still not satisfied. Change what the sign says. And he says, what I have written, I have written. As far as I am concerned, he is your king. And how true that is. But that's not the end of it. There's an added dimension that his kingship is not limited to one people group, as we've already said, but that kingship is universal, Pilate included. In verse 10, when Jesus refuses to answer Pilate, and Pilate says, do you not know that I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answers him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. All authority belongs to Him. All authority belongs to Him. Nothing happens outside of His control, and that includes His own death. This whole scene would be backwards to just a a casual reader. 
Wouldn't the God of the universe just seize control? Why would God die? This seems so upside down because people generally cast their vision, their, their view of God after themselves. And that's what they would do for themselves. But instead we have the God of the universe, the Lord of all creation, the global king doing something that almost no one expected. Beloved, were you there? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The scene, the sign, third, we look at this picture of the soldiers. A friend of mine was visiting an old church And he overheard an older lady who was admiring all the beautiful stained glass windows, which we've covered up to not blind you all. And she kept looking at the depiction of Jesus on the cross, and she commented how shameful it was that they depicted him so scantily clothed. She thought that this was improper. Well... Uh, The cross isn't often a way that people are honored. In fact, even this depiction is inaccurate. In, In reality, criminals were crucified naked. It's as a way of humiliating the person. When, when armies would conquer, they would, they would take the captives that were defeated and they would, they would force them to march down their streets naked. It was thought to be the highest form of humiliation. So was Christ humiliated on that cross in nakedness. Verses 23 and 24, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And then John adds, this happened that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. What's happening here? I I read this and I asked myself, why put this in here? Is it for us to compare to people who are indifferent to Christ, as in um, they heard about Him, but they go on gambling with their lives to continue with our allegorical themes? Or is this to show that prophecy was fulfilled? I think John puts this here to show us that as horrible as this scene is, the the nakedness, the torture of the Savior, God is not sitting in heaven at the edge of His seat hoping dearly that everything turns out okay. I think John is showing us that this has been the plan of salvation from the beginning. That this most important time in history, the death and ultimately the resurrection of the Savior, it wasn't a fluke or an accident. It wasn't on imprecise timing. It wasn't a fortuitous event. It was all brought about by the hand of sovereign grace. While our depiction here of Jesus is is frail and weak in his humanity, we also have a picture of a father who is steadfast and in control. 
a loving servant son who is willing and able to secure salvation of his people for his father. Beloved, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Then we get another glimpse of the Son, our final point. As we look over these events of the crucifixion, the Savior. John is a master of contrasts in his gospel. He's just given us these four soldiers who are gambling over Jesus' clothing, and then immediately we meet these four women who are standing and stayed by Jesus' side. Now, we have no other record of Mary, the wife of Clopas, though she could be the wife of Cleopas. If you remember from uh, the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, we're not sure. But look at the other three women, all women whose lives have been deeply impacted and transformed by Jesus. First, his mother's sister, her name is Salome. She is the mother of James and John, the sons of thunder who wanted to be like Elijah and call down fire when they met a little bit of opposition in the Samaria. And here's a lady whose life had been radically transformed, totally turned upside down by Jesus. Her sons just up and leave the family fishing business so that they can become fishers of men. That would have been an interesting conversation with mom and dad. And then later, she's the one who requests that her two sons would sit on Jesus' left and right, to which Jesus rebukes her, saying that she doesn't know what she's asking. Can they drink the cup that I'm about to drink? The, the cup of God's wrath, can they drink it? And they say, well, yeah. Then he says, they will drink of my cup. But that will be a different cup. That will be the cup of fellowship with Christ instituted in the Lord's Supper. And even in drinking that cup of fellowship, there will be suffering associated with being tied to Christ. And yet through all of these changes and all of these challenges, she is there standing at the cross. She stands next to another woman, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, whose life had been also transformed by Jesus, a woman who had seven demons. You think you would forget what it's like to be possessed by seven demons? Your life a wreck? Total chaos, no settling, no rest, no break. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes and he casts out the demons and he gives her peace and calm and joy and hope. She knew this was not just some ordinary man. She has experienced true freedom like all of us who have experienced the forgiveness and joy that Christ gives us. And here she is watching her Savior at the cross. The last woman is his mother. 
the woman who gave birth to him, the woman who raised him, the woman who was told by Simeon when he was a baby that a sword would pierce her soul too. She stands at the cross watching all of this unfold, not the way she had anticipated. And through all of this agony and pain, Jesus looks down and says, woman, here is your son. And to John, who was also there, here is your mother. Even though John's birth mother is also standing right there. He says, you, John, take care of Mary. A a picture of the church, the the family unit we become, that, that we look after and we care for one another, even outside of of family relationships, of birth relationships. But here is Jesus, dying on the cross, mediating the new covenant for mankind, and He is still fulfilling His duty as a son, obeying the law to the fullest. He's not breaking the fifth commandment. He's honoring mother and father, but He's also thinking of the welfare of others. He's not even thinking of himself on the cross. Even in these dying moments, he doesn't take the the wine that's mixed with myrrh that was offered to him, according to Mark's account, which would have killed some of the pain. He experiences all of it, and he looks down, and he thinks of others. Beloved, were you there? when they crucified my Lord. The God of the universe stumbles under the weight of His own cross. His own people have sent Him to the cross. His closest friends have abandoned Him. But it all happens under the sovereign hand of the loving Father. Why? Because God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, that those who believe in Him will not die the death of the unrighteous, but will have eternal life. A day that looked like any other, just a routine execution for the soldiers, just another day in Jerusalem in first century, but because of Christ because he was willing to go to the cross and face the punishment that the first Adam plunged humanity into in order to rescue us from ourselves. We too can stand at the cross as people transformed by his death, just as these women were, transformed by the love of God which was perfectly displayed on Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And because we know that Sunday is coming, we can die to self, die to the wicked ways of our hearts and live in the newness of life and live with the love of God in us and live in the light of the resurrection. Great tragedy could even befall us but we now live as people with hope. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? 
I'm going to play a one-minute clip from a sermon that was given about a month ago. It was a sermon on John chapter 11, the death of Lazarus. Listen to it carefully. That was Pastor Chad Scruggs from Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. The same pastor whose nine-year-old daughter was killed in that school shooting. A man who knew to come to the cross to be reminded of the love of God, the peace of God, of Christ, the resurrection of the dead. Beloved, were you there when they crucified my Lord?